So our next uh, speaker, I'm just thrilled, um, managed to rearrange her schedule to be here. Um, Dr. Allison Agwu is an associate professor, I believe soon to be considered for a full professor, I don't want to jinx you, of pediatrics and internal medicine. So one of those rare people and very valuable people who are uh, trained in med peds. Um, and Allison has done a lot of work on sexual health in adolescents and is going to share her insights and thoughts about this incredibly important population with us today. So Allison, please join us. All right, good afternoon. These are my disclosures. And so my objectives are always threefold because two is never enough. So I, <laughs> I want us to really think about the reasons for increased STIs and HIV among adolescents, and then to list some important aspects of a detailed sexual history for adolescents, including sexual and gender minority adolescents, which we've already seen are very important contributions to the epidemic. And then for us to think about solutions in identifying approaches to improve sexual health among adolescents. So why should we discuss health among adolescents? So the Youth Risk Behavior Survey done by the CDC every year, high school students, 9 to 12th grade, 40% have ever had sexual intercourse. And if we say 40% in a survey, that means 60% because they are worried their parents are going to know the results of the survey. 10% had had more than four partners, at least four more partners. And of those who had sex, 30% had sex during the prior three months. Of those, about half did not use a condom with their last sex. 14% did not use any method to prevent pregnancy. 19% drank alcohol or used some other drug before their last sexual encounter. 7% had been physically forced to have sexual intercourse when they did not want to. And less than 10% of those students have ever been tested for HIV. Despite all of them being in the CDC recommendations to be tested for HIV. So I'm glad you're all here. So youth are at increased risk for STIs, HIV, period. It's not for debate. We're not going to discuss it. It's facts, and here's why. So there's some biological risk. There's anatomically for young women. There's some cervical ectopy and changes that happen as you go from a pre-adolescent to adolescent that actually puts you at increased risk for those cells actually being increased risk for HIV acquisition and STIs. There's just a greater risk for physical like, traumatic sex. There's concurrent STIs, which I'll show you, and you had got a hint of that in some of the presentations before, or higher rates in adolescents. Then there's brain development, just, just maturation of the executive suite. I have an emerging adolescence, and I see it <laughs> happening, the synapses going together. And it's that center of the brain that includes risk-reward, calibration, problem-solving, prioritizing, et cetera. Long-term planning, not so much, right? It's all in development. And multiple factors we are increasingly recognizing, environment, culture, trauma, substance use, substance use, marijuana is a substance, illness, et cetera, impacts how that maturation occurs. I understand there's significant variability in that, because when I say this, people say, oh, but my 12-year-old is like a 21-year-old, fine. But I know many 21-year-olds that are like 12-year-olds. So there's, there's a lot of variability in that, so we have to understand that. And cognitive development, they go from concrete thinking and a limited ability to perceive consequences to then mature thinking, et cetera, and more um, as they get older. Cognitive development, like I said, concrete thinking, then advances to more complex. There's a limited ability to perceive consequences. And this is a good thing, actually. I want to you know, say risky behavior or normal development. There's risk-taking and experimentation. 
exploration of fill in the blank, <laughs> sex, drugs, rock and whatever you want to do, fill in the blank. They're exploring, and this is good. That exploration actually allows them to push the envelope. It's a reason why so many of the things that are discovered and presented in the world come from young people. They don't have insurance, they don't pay taxes, they don't have the risk that we perceive as we get older. Um, it helps them with self-esteem, self-confidence, self-identity. They get peer respect and credibility for doing those things and pushing the envelope. And they're learning autonomy, peer acceptance, and respect. Psychosocially and psycho uh, development, there is that invincibility and the independence seeking that it's good. At the same time, parents and guardians are backing up. Some may run away or be truant, even when they're in your house. Um, but there's, we're backing away, and they're trying to do all these things on their own. So, I would say it's risky behavior and it's normal development. There's some of it that's part of how they become who they are and how we all became who we are. So, increased risk for STIs and HIV among youth, it's really the perfect storm. So all these things, I talk about the development and the personal level, but there's physical level, there's trauma, there's tons of things that are coming together to lead to their increased risk. Pay attention on your quiz. But rates of chlamydia, gonorrhea, primary and secondary syphilis are going up for this population, period. Chlamydia is highest among women 15 to 24 years of age. Males 15 to 24 years of age. They've increased 29% 2013 to 2017, 9% in females, so going up. Gonorrhea up 52%, females up 24%. Reasons for the increase include just increased incidence in general, Increased screening, maybe. Increased extragenital screening, all of the above, maybe. And this figure just shows that young women and young men are, are leading the charge <laughs> in terms of uh, rates of gonorrhea and chlamydia. HIV among youth, about one in five of all HIV diagnoses is occurring in this young population. And I say youth, I claim the youth 13 to 24, and we know biologically and, and there's more and more information about the brain that 24-year-olds are not magically better than smarter than 18-year-olds. And that's why we're sort of expanding the definition of young people to include 24. Some people go as, as high as age 30. All right. In terms of disparities that we see, the HIV epidemic is a story of, of disparities. I think Tripp showed this earlier, showing about 13% of the population being um, African-American, but really about half of those who are infected and maybe even more among young people um, in, from the African-American population than Latino followed. All right. So the large majority of young people that are acquiring HIV, it's male-to-male -male sexual contact. And then heterosexual contact with high-risk individuals. I hate that definition, so I don't use it, because nobody, actually, I'll ask it. How many people are having sex with a high-risk person? <laughs> exactly, right? Now, everybody's also paying attention to the injection drug use epidemic, because we do think, as you see in several high case, um, high, high prevalence or high um, uh, newsworthy areas, that we've seen the link between the injection drug use and opioid epidemic and, and HIV acquisition. Okay. About 51,000 youth are living with HIV. 40% don't know their diagnosis. For the first time this past year with data, we saw a decrease in the overall number of youth that were infected, and we got excited. 6% down, 32% down in women, and men unchanged overall. But among MSM, about 5% down among African American, down 6% among whites, but up 17% among young Latino.
And we could debate and talk about why we think that is. Okay, so sexual and gender minority youth. <laughs> sexual minority youth, I want to give you some clear definitions. I don't know that I have to tell this population, this group here, but I will. So it's youth who identify as same gender loving, gay, lesbian, bisexual, questioning, or some other sexual identity, and or have sexual contact with persons of the same or both sexes. Gender minority youth, youth who identify as a gender different from their gender assigned at birth. Non-binary, questioning, gender identity, or otherwise gender diverse. I say this because we, so many times people say LGBT, whatever those letters are. I think it's important for us to know what the letters are because we have to respect those letters so we can expect our patients to be able to then get good sexual history. So together, they are referred as LGBTQ. And if you didn't know, here's what the letters stand for. So we are clear and on the same page. But we have to think about the concept of intersection. And if we don't think about intersection, we then compartmentalize people and we don't think about them together. So each letter, like we said, uh, represents a distinct population. But we have to think about the subpopulations within each group. So based on race, ethnicity, age, SES, region, those things are intersecting and may impact how a young person presents and what they, they present with and how they talk with you about their different intersectional identities. All right. Okay. I show this slide because we talk about LGBTQ youth in particular, um, but there, if you, you focus on that part, you don't think about a youth being black or brown. You may miss some of the things that may affect, again, how they present, what they present, and what they may have access to, et cetera. Okay. So, risk among sexual and gender minority youth and why we talk about it, compared to heterosexual and cisgender youth, they're more likely to have sex at a younger age, more likely to have more partners, they're more likely to have used alcohol or drugs before their last sex, and this is actually on the survey, and they're more likely, or less likely to use condoms before their last sex, and they're more likely to have not used any pregnancy prevention method in last sex. When you sit in sexual history for, or sexual education for fifth graders or sixth graders or seventh graders, there's so much focus on what happens, the act, and if you are trying to prevent pregnancy and that's what you focus on, well, my young kid who doesn't want to prevent pregnancy because they're not interested in having sex with someone that may make them pregnant, don't hear those messages, right? And so how we deliver those messages impacts what they hear and then impacts how they protect themselves or not. Okay. Transgender young men and women. Transgender young women face the highest rate of HIV and STIs compared to other sexual gender minority youth, period. So I'm not gonna debate some of these things, they're pure, they're facts. Um, increased HIV STI risk may be associated with commercial sex work. Now, we often take commercial sex work, but most of the young people that I deal with are not necessarily exchanging sex for money. They're exchanging sex for a ride, exchanging sex for food, exchanging sex for a place to work or to be or to live. And so if you say, are you engaging in commercial sex work? No, where'd you sleep last night? Oh, on, on Bubba's couch. And what'd you have to do for Bubba to sleep on Bubba's couch? So that's the way you have to get the information that you understand they, they, that takes away power from them and puts them at increased risk. So increased S HIV STI, again, associated with unemployment, substance use, incarceration, on and on and on. HIV prevalence among transgender men is often not talked about. It is relatively low, about zero to three percent in one study, but young transgender men, so meaning born, um, born a female, but identifies as, as male as your gender identity. They're at high risk for acquiring HIV and we don't talk about them. Okay, so 
Which of the following is true? I already told you this about sexual health in adolescents. A, rates of sexual transmitted infections are decreasing. Pregnancy rates are increasing. Sexual and gender minority adolescents and youth have higher risk of STIs. And PrEP is not approved for adolescents. Give you a little, little minutes. Trip was supposed to sing while we had this going. <laughs> okay, so beautiful, beautiful. So, they were listening. Good. All right. So, what can be done to assess and decrease risk? That's why we're here. And some of this, I'm hoping I'm speaking to the choir. But when we saw the demographics, not a lot of you are adolescent or pediatric specialists. About 4% peds. I think it was about 10% adolescent people, maybe less than that. Um, and so, everybody else thinks that they know how to deal with adolescents and peds. So, let's make sure we're all on the same page when we leave. So, what can be done? So, <laughs> Blackish is one of my favorite shows. Uh, this is Diane, played by uh, Marseille Martin. And you've seen Diane evolve and grow um, on Blackish, from the little kid with the glasses to now a beautiful, mature young woman. With young people, that's how it is. And I have one in my house. It's every day there's somebody different approaching you. And so you always have to be thinking about how I'm going to connect. <laughs> Some days <laughs> worse than others. Always thinking about how I'm going to develop rapport and trust. And it's not about being able to, you know, say Cardi B words or trying to meet them where they are and trying to be too cool, because then you're corny and that's not okay. But it's about establishing that I'm going to meet you where you are and just having the relaxation and trust over time, okay? For those that have the opportunity to, to meet adolescents over and over again. So developing rapport and trust. Starting early and normalizing discussions about sexuality and being careful how we have those discussions about sexuality. I try never to say so to a young male in front of me. Um, so who's your girlfriend? Because guess what? Not interested in girls. And by you saying that, you've already said you're not going to be open to what I may be and who I may be interested in. So let them run the flow, right? Let them flow with them. Assess changes in evolution, because today, it's, it's, again, we talked about exploration. So every time you're, you're meeting them, where are they, what are they doing? What are they up to? Kind of tweaking and seeing how you may fit in based on what they tell you. It's an opportunity for comprehensive education and delivery of health services every time you touch an adolescent. Decision-making around healthy relationships, healthy sexual behavior, and prevention of STIs, HIV and HPV. When we say, hey, you're going to get your flu shot, your this, et cetera, and you can get that HPV vaccine if you want, right? We've already said, listen, mom, by giving her the HPV vaccine, you're going to turn her into a harlot, and therefore you shouldn't <laughs> give her that vaccine, right? So how we couch those things are very, is very important. <coughs> An opportunity for screenings and for vaccinations, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So has anybody heard of the HEADS assessment? Raise your hand if you have. <coughs> Okay, so that means about 80% of you have not heard about the HEADS assessment, so let's talk about that. And this is addressing home and household. So all the things that, we, that go into an adolescent, understanding them and their environment are critical. So home, household, and being open to what their household may look like, what their education, their employment, their activities, and being open to whatever their activities are, and what, what, what are you up to these days? How are you doing? What do you do after school? Taking time, and I know we have 15 minutes, but if you do this on every, every visit, then you can follow up. Are you still doing dancing? Oh, no, now I do X, Y, and Z, right? Drugs, all kinds of drugs, 
vaping, et cetera, right, everything. Sex and sexuality, and again, how we ask those questions are very critical in terms of not putting up walls. Suicidality and mental health, asking about those. And the HEADS assessment, if you have a checklist of things that you're just gonna ask about, you then use it as a springboard to ask more. It's a conversation and not a survey with more in-depth probing and opportunities to sort of tweak and get more information. Um, adolescents need to be closely and carefully engaged to understand their psychosocial history. All right, if you're looking down and typing and not paying attention, they don't think you want to hear it, and they may say things to kind of throw you off. Oh, yeah, I like having sex in my ear. Uh-huh, sex in ear. <laughs> All right. Rapport building is key, and again, it's not about being cool. It's about just meeting them where we are. Pediatric clinicians may be one of the few allies of youth. However, it's any clinician, okay? Any clinician. So while there are only a minority of you that are pediatric and adolescent providers, I want you to understand the large majority of adolescents we don't actually see, right? They, we engage, engage in the first two years and then maybe before they go to middle school and then we oftentimes don't see them for regular preventive health. So they're seen in urgent cares, they're seen in STI clinics, they're seen in other places and those are the opportunities to get the HEADS assessment to figure out how you may be able to reduce risk for youth, okay? So we all need to be adolescent and youth providers. Confidential. I'll have a slide later about consent laws and confidentiality and knowing what your state says you can and can't do. But I started 10 years old giving my young people the opportunity to talk to me by themselves. So therefore, at 16, when I think they really need to talk to me by themselves, the parent or guardian is not shocked that now you want to talk to them. Well, what is it about what you're saying that at 16 they need to? We just set the stage starting at 10, 11, because they may want to have questions about their growing buds or this, that, and the third. And so if I start that then, it's not a surprise later when I ask the parents to step out of the room. And the young people come in ready, oh my gosh, Dr. A, when am I going to have my two minutes with you by myself, right? <laughs> and then I ask them, what parts of what we talked about today are you okay with mom and dad knowing or not knowing? Giving them some agency over their information, okay? Non-judgmental. Like I said, they will say things to throw you off, and your goal is to keep your poker face, even though you're, right? Keep your poker face to really get a sense of, okay, so, all right, so yeah, that, that's cool. So tell me more about that. Non-assuming, we'll talk more about that in a later slide, but never assume by the questions we ask or by the way someone's dressed that, oh, that means they identify as X, Y, and Z. Always ask. And be specific. Are you having sex? Mm, not right now, sure not having sex. <laughs> Right? <laughs> when is the last time you had sex? Oh, last night. Right? Okay? The five Ps, all right? So you want to address the partners, who are their partners, where are they meeting their partners, et cetera. Prevention of pregnancy, uh, protection from STIs, their sexual practices, all right? And past history of STIs are things that you want to address. Avoid medical jargon. Are you having condomless anal intercourse? Doesn't go well with our young people, right? <laughs> Are you a top or your bottom? Does anybody know what a top or a bottom is? Raise your hand if you know if you're what a top is. So only about half the room. Half the room. A top is the individual who inserts his penis into the other person. A bottom is the person who's receptive. Do you see that? So if you say, are you, you top or bottom? What's the last time you topped? Top, last time you bottomed? Do you douche? What have you? You've normalized it versus using those medical terms. So very important to know that. And then sometimes I say, well, I, I've never heard that before. So why don't you tell me what that is? Like, really? Oh, okay. Right? And then you learn to use for the next person. 
and engage, engage the adolescent in the process of adopting healthy, promoting behaviors. So instead of saying, do you use condoms? Because if you say, you use condoms, right? You've already alienated them versus, how do you like to have sex? I don't like to use condoms, Dr. Day. Okay, so then if you don't like to use condoms, we can talk about the benefits of condoms, but let's maybe you're more for PrEP and we need to be pushing that. So think about how what you're gonna recommend works into their, what they prefer to do. Okay, so this is taking the exclusive adolescent sexual history. Engage the youth and other aspects of their lives before jumping to questions on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All right, so start higher level, then close, go slowly, slowly. Be comfortable if you're fidgeting so they're going to sense your discomfort, and then they, too, are not going to, to engage with you. Adolescents really prefer if you're direct. They, they really do. They actually prefer that. Sometimes they go, whoa, okay, we're going there. We are. So that's okay, right? They prefer that. Put them at ease. You may say, you know, I know this may be embarrassing, but I ask all my patients these questions, and so let's talk about X, Y, and Z. Sometimes they'll ask you questions <laughs> right back, and so you have to be careful about what you, you, how open they are, how open you are. This last point I can't emphasize enough. How a person identifies their sexuality or gender does not always tell you who they have sex with or who they are attracted to, so do not make any assumptions. So I made the point about young trans men. Um, young trans men, many also have sex with males, right? Or some lesbian women also have me have sex with males. So making sure you just, well, who do you have sex with and being open to whatever the answer is gonna be and not make assumptions. So barriers to care in pediatric settings for adolescents, a third of adolescents' visits had no discussion of sexuality issues at all. And this is actually a study where they put a microphone in the room and recorded and then went back and uh, analyzed those interviews, a third. When they had those discussions, they lasted about 36 seconds on average. Okay, Providers were less comfortable with taking history of FSGM or sexual gender minority youth and those youth are often marginalized by non-inclusive health settings. So there are posters on the wall about sex, but they only include heterosexual couples. Therefore, this is not a place that's open to what I may be interested in. And then we all, I'm so happy to see the, raise your hand again, the trainee row. There were a bunch, yes. So happy to see that because there's inadequate training. We don't know how to ask those questions or how to elicit that information. So I'm glad that you're here. All right, so again, 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 be aware there are a wide range of sexual behaviors, activities, expressions, remain open, remain neutral, provide comprehensive, non-stigmatizing information about sexual reproductive health, and then promote healthy sexuality, even if a teen is not sexually active. They may not be telling you they are, or they may not be, but if you already said, okay, so one day if you are, well, let's talk about it and give them information, they'll come back and they'll ask you more because they know you're a safe space. All right, inclusive sexual history, bet. Extra genital chlamydia and gonorrhea screening in patients with history of oral and anal sex. Sometimes they won't tell you about their oral and anal sex. So I'm gonna screen, et cetera, X, Y, and Z, top, all these areas, that's okay with you or what have you, just offer it. Um, sexually active youth should be screened at least annually. This is guidelines with more frequent intervals based on their risk behavior, what they tell you they're engaging in, what they, they do um, as the, that you elicit from them. The 2015 STI guidelines have specific STI testing recommendations, and Jeannie and um, Susan talked about this earlier. And then that testing is actually sufficient in most cases, right? I know this freaks everybody out because we don't want to do pelvic exams, right? For the most part, you don't necessarily have to do a pelvic exam, but there are some cases where you do need to. So you've been, you've been Persistent vaginal discharge, they have 
urinary dysuria or, or sexually in a sexually active female, dysmenorrhea, amenorrhea, abnormal vaginal bleeding, lower abdom abdominal pain. There's some specific reasons why you may need to. For the most part, urine testing not, not are, are, are sufficient. You don't necessarily have to do that pelvic exam. So those of you who are freaked out by that, most times you oftentimes don't have to, but there are times where you will. HIV testing. About half of adolescents who are living with HIV do not know they have their status. Barriers to testing include low perceived risk of infection. The t-shirt about that, not me, it's every, about somebody else, okay? That person is at risk because she looks like she does this, or he's at risk because he looks like, but I'm not. And I've diagnosed HIV, and we talked about high prevalence areas, et cetera. 14-year-olds in Baltimore City, 12-year-old Baltimore City, all right? Um, one partner, 10 partners, right? So it really, just do the test. The CDC says you should, just do it. All right, this is what the recommendations are. 13 to 64, all pregnant women, and then subsequent tests for all persons with increased risk, at least annually. For those of you who are adult providers, if there's a family diagnosis, please ask about little people that are around. All right, we've caught several pediatric diagnoses after a maternal diagnosis, where someone took the time to go back and ask, well, tell me about your last child and your children and gone back and done the testing, okay? We've diagnosed 16-year-olds who were perinatally acquired and were never tested, okay? Anytime you have clinical suspicion, do it. And if the patient asks, don't try to convince them why they shouldn't get an HIV test, just do the test. Okay, PrEP is approved for adolescents, all right? Uh, the adolescents may be the group that may be not approved for Discovery, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but we uh, have been offering PrEP for years, and uh, it is approved for this population, all the way down to 35 kilos. And it does not need to prescribe, be prescribed by specialists. You don't have to be an HIV provider to provide PrEP. I hate when I get a referral from a pediatrician who says this person is interested in PrEP. I got the sexual history, I got all these things, and they asked for PrEP and I referred them to you. No, write the prescription for the PrEP. <laughs> Thank you. So <laughs> young adults make about less than 10% of PrEP prescriptions, but we already said greater than 20% of new HIV diagnoses. So there's a little problem here. Um, studies have shown some low and non-adherence among adolescents and young adults who have started PrEP. So it's about how do we continue them on PrEP. Sustainability is a big thing, but it shouldn't be a barrier for us writing a prescription. Right? Um, we should know our minor consent laws. I'm not going to tell you uh, that you have to do X, Y, and Z. Every state has different laws and it's different. Know what your minor consent laws are in. Most states have the capacity for adolescents to get tested and to access STI and HIV reduction services without an adult. While you should encourage them to engage an adult or a parent or a guardian, we should not make it such a barrier that they then don't access those services. All right. All right. Family planning reproductive health. So pregnancy among adolescents is actually declining across all demographics, which is exciting, down about 64% between 91 and 2015. However, 80% of adolescent pregnancies are unplanned. So always thinking about how you can recommend and what you should do in terms of inquiring about are they trying to have um, babies. Now, if they are not trying to not become pregnant, then they are trying to become pregnant. So let's just make sure we get the strategies to help them get to their goals. Um, and the strategies for addressing sexual history, it's important in counseling about contraception. We should be non-judgmental, empathetic, non-threatening, engaging, supportive. I don't have to tell you about that. 
And all options really should be available to adolescents, and they are, including absence only, but not only absence only. So SGM youth, I really thought important to say this. Young lesbian females do get pregnant, but oftentimes nobody talks to them about what they can do to not get pregnant. So being inclusive and offering them things and not assuming that because they are having same gender um, behavior that they're not gonna be at risk for pregnancy. Um, many SGM have sexual encounters that may not be predicted by their orientation. So talking about birth control is important. Okay, so which of the following is not one of the five Ps? Partners, prevention of pregnancy, sexual practices, protection of STIs, and pills. <coughs> They're not sure, they're going really slow. <laughs> oh, fantastic, yes, correct. Good, you learn. All right. So please don't forget about immunizations, all right? I already talked about the HPV vaccine for males and females and how we couch that is important. It's, it's shocking to me that this, this vaccine, it's highly effective and the uptake has not been great. And I think it's because we truly link it with, oh, you give them the vaccine and all of a sudden they'll be on a car throwing their, their boobs around and getting HPV. How we couch it is really critical. Right, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and then of course Tdap, MCV, flu, and others as indicated. All right, national coverage really is terrible for HPV, and it really shouldn't be. If we had an HIV vaccine, would we not give it because we thought that it would increase someone's risk of having sex? The answer is no. So with that, I will stop. I am perfectly on time, and be happy to take any questions. Allison, thank you, that was fantastic. In fact, instead of starting with a question, I'm gonna read a comment that somebody wrote. This review on taking a history and good communication was fantastic, underlined, and should be reviewed with every and any clinician. Thank you. I just you know, actually, it's interesting. When we, um, when we talked about this course, we actually talked about having a session on how to take a sexual history. and. Um, my inclination was it would be good, but I think a lot of people thought that is like way so basic. Do we really need to talk about that? But I think your emphasis is incredibly important because a lot of the things that we hear about taking social history are, is the content and not the approach. So thank you for that. Um, okay, so I have a great question. A lot of adolescents come to doctor's appointments with their parents. What is the best way to ask parents to step out of the room and not listen at the door to approach sensitive <laughs> subjects that they may not want to share with their parents or guardian? I love that question because I don't know how to do it. Yeah. So I, I think part of that I mentioned in the talk was starting at a very early age, just making it part of the normal visit. You know, we're going to you know, so-and-so is 10 years old now, or I have to do it at 10. If you want to do it later or older, it's okay. And I'm going to give them an opportunity to talk with me by themselves. It's their chance to talk about things that they may be embarrassed or uncomfortable um, talking um, with you about. Um, and so we're just going to do that. And so you can go out in the hall. There's some magazines. It's a perfect opportunity for you to talk to the social worker or what have you. We'll come get you when we're done. That's it. 
And then I oftentimes tell the adolescent and the mom, of course, or the parent, that if there is something that is life-threatening, all the same sort of caveats, life-threatening, sexual abuse, something, then I ha I'm a mandatory reporter, so I will report. However, most things are going to be our information. It's going to be our, our dialogue. And I remind them that they get, some, they get their time with their doctor and their, do their child needs to do the same. Great. Thank you. Um, also, a great question. Um, how to deal with the relevant information that the adolescent m person does not want included in the electronic medical record? So that's an issue that comes up for a lot of people who don't want sensitive or stigmatizing um, information in the medical record. So how, how do you approach that with the patient, and then what do you do? So there are times when I will just not type. You know, particularly if they're under 18 and their parent has complete access to their information, I will just not put it in the actual record. That doesn't mean that I don't record it someplace or store it, but if particularly they're saying something that may end up leading to them being kicked out of the house, or something, I, I will not put it in the record. Okay, and reassuring them about that is and really reassuring critical. And reassuring them, and I, I make a big deal out of it. I, I'm not writing right now. Let's talk. <laughs> no, I do. Let's let's talk. Yeah, it's a very concrete. Um, well, a great question about prep um, and the fact that although adolescents need prep, um, they're not number one accessing it, and number two, given all the concerns about envisioning future risk and benefit, adherence may be challenging, particularly for some adolescents and maybe even given their external circumstances. How often do you see the adolescents that you put on PrEP? Do you see them more frequently than the every three to six months that the CDC recommends? Because CDC doesn't really talk specifically about PrEP guidance for adolescents. We should see that, by the way. Yeah, so for the, the as you know, it's, it's every three months um, that, we're rec that we see them or are supposed to see them. I see them as frequently as they want to be seen, and we, we have a prep navigator. We have try to put a, as many things in place, and the prep clinic has things that are um, help to address social determinants that may help enhance their ability to stay on prep. So recognizing that there may be some challenges and barriers, it doesn't mean that we then not prescribe the prep. I think we work with the youth to try to figure out how best to keep them on prep. Um, um, I think the other trip made the point about having options is key. And so I'm excited about having the Nexplanon-like prep or injectable. I think we need to work with how the youth would like to use their prep and not say that they just can't do it. Right. Remember, um, I know you're mostly New Yorkers and you're not shy, so you can come to the microphone and ask your own question. You don't have to use me as an a meet intermediary. Uh, so, and, and what makes me say that in particular is that I had a conversation at the break with someone who I can't see in the audience who's a care provider in the Atlanta area who told me that she saw three new infections of HIV in one week and they were all in young people. Um, so I don't think I can emphasize enough how low the risk perception is, um, how um, it's not, the incident of HIV infection is not always related to quote unquote risky sex. There, I mean, I mean all sex is you're exposing yourself. Right. So, um, so really important. And yes, I did, and do you want to respond to that before? Yeah, no, I, no, I agree. I mean, we, so we participated, my site participated in the, in the ATN 110 trial, which was a demonstration project for PrEP and young people. And we had, you know, 
we're screening on Jacked and Grinder and all these sites to get youth that were at, at increased risk. And it was so interesting that so many of them thought that they, oh, I was coming in because I do have sex, but I'm not really at risk. About 12% of those kids were already infected by the time they walked wow. in the door. Yeah. Staggering. Yes. I just wanted to bring up the top. Tell us, tell us who you are and where you're I'm from. I'm Janet Spinner, and I work in a community health center in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. I do OBGYN as a midwife and HIV care as a midwife. Um, having worked since 1988, I've had a lot of exposure to adolescents and a lot of exposure to women who are enduring intimate partner violence, domestic violence, um, and find that it is a huge barrier to care. Um, and I think that that is, we have to become better educated about trauma-informed care so that we can move those individuals along. You're not always going to get an affirmative when you ask about it, but you need to ask. Additionally, I wanted to mention a strategy we've worked out delightfully in our clinic. I've got amazing women working with me, and they will bring the adolescent, the young woman, the older woman, into the triage room and have the person, be that parent, partner of either gender, or somebody else into the waiting room or the exam room and do the pertinent interview then. And then I can be retrieved to start the discussion. That's another way to get at the important information in a fashion that that young person feels safe. DHS is going to start an initiative around intimate partner violence, domestic violence, be that transgender, cisgender, whatever, yeah. gender fluid, um, to, with um, HIV especially, those individuals are at higher risk for HIV and STIs, and I'll get off my soapbox. No, no, I agree. I think um, certainly with intimate partner violence, I think a group that oftentimes we don't ask enough about is young MSM. The rates are probably even higher yeah, among that's young right. MSM in terms yeah. of yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's time-consuming. Yes. yes, and I also really appreciate your bringing up uh, pregnancy and young um, women who identify as lesbians or have sex with other women. In fact, there's been some really interesting qualitative work with that group indicating that sometimes that risk of pregnancy is related to violence that is directly related to their gender presentation. Um, and they're, you know, it's a really, really important uh, point. A um, couple of other great questions. Um, is U equals U applicable to adolescents? Do we have the data that we need? Oh, I knew someone asked me this question. So um, I think there's no reason why U equals U should not be applicable to adolescents. And I certainly tell all my adolescents that, that. And it is an incredibly empowering message for them. Many of them who feel like with them having their diagnosis, they're the worst and therefore they're so happy if anybody wants them that they're okay with taking whoever. But that being said, I do think that there is some known decreased or lower adherence rates among adolescents to their antiretroviral therapy. That's in every study we know adolescents have lower rates of adherence. And so the U equals U, great. The twice a year viral load monitoring, no. Right, so I think it is important to have more frequent discussions with them and actually more frequent testing. And when you say undetectable equals untransmittable, they have to understand, sometimes it's like, okay, great, I'm undetectable, I'll move on, and then I do whatever I do, and then what happens. No, it's making sure you have to stay undetectable and reinforcing that. And so um, I think it absolutely applies. I think it does deserve some special hand-holding and 
to get them to stay that way. To, to Excellent. Them. Great. One very final quick question, which I think is a great one. You emphasize that pelvic examinations are not routinely indicated for adolescents, uh, except in certain circumstances, um, and that you could get urine-based uh, NAT testing. What proportion of infections are you missing uh, with urine-based NAT testing? In other words, would you increase your sensitivity by getting the test at the cervix by an amount enough that we should be concerned about? So, you know, I think you, you can probably answer more carefully the more, with more data the, the comparison. There actually are relatively equivalent, the, the, the um, cervical testing and the urine testing. Now, of course, if someone has symptoms of PID, et cetera, and you're going to literally culture from the cervix, that's different. But you don't want to push somebody off yeah. by saying, you know what, it has to be from the pelvic exam, and then they won't get the testing at all versus when you know the urine is essentially equivalent. Could not agree more. A reminder that the most sensitive test is actually a self-obtained vaginal swab. Um, so that's always an option. But urine performs really well, and it's no reason to do a pelvic exam. Thank you. And I'm going to turn it over to Tripp to introduce our next speaker.